Hi, I'm Harry. Hello, I'm Rory, and you're listening to Games on Film. Welcome back to Games on Film, the podcast that celebrates video game movies. And I'm very happy that we're back celebrating an Uwe Boll movie today. Do you feel the same way? Yes, cue parades, cue <laughs> confetti. Mm. Bowlers back in town. Brown confetti, maybe? <laughs> um, yes, this is actually sadly the first uh, podcast we've done since Uwe Boll blocked us on Twitter. Um, for reasons we don't know. Could We've it... always been rather nice and cordial I'd... about his movies, I'd... I would say, actually. We've, we've, we have approached his films with an open mind. Let's just say that our opinions of this film we're going to talk about will not be coloured by the blocking that we've received. We are above that, we're superior to that, we won't let a simple Twitter blocking affect our judgement on today's movie. Do you think he blocked us because... I said he was a horrible man. Oh, that might have been it. Oh, yeah, we're fine about his movies. He's not a very nice person. (laughs) No, but I I sneakily looked at his Twitter feed via my actual account, at OnlyManWhoCan. Don't tell him. I'm not missing much. Okay. (laughs) So, um, anyway, though, this is the, what, fourth Uwebol film we've tackled so far? Yep. this This is before... Far Cry, isn't it? I don't know. Well, I think he might have... He filmed this in 2005. This came out in 2007. Uh, I think Far Cry was maybe within that at some point. Just think, like when Steven Spielberg created Jurassic Park and Schindler's List in the same year, Uwe Boll was creating Far Cry and today's film In the Name of the King, a Dungeon Seas tale at the same time. Uh, Shall we talk a bit about the games they're based on? Yeah, we'll try to. So this is loosely based on the first of the Dungeon Siege games. I think the first game came out in 2002 and was created by Gas Powered Games, a studio which has since closed, but only recently, in 2018. It was founded by a developer called Chris Taylor, and he uh, created the first Dungeon Siege game. I think prior to this, he was best known for the Total Annihilation games, which I remember being fairly well-regarded real-time strategy games, sort of a competitor to Command and Conquer. But Dungeon Siege is quite different. It's an action role-playing game, and uh, the kind of game where you amass a party of different kinds of uh, people. A fellowship, if you will. A fellowship, let's say. <laughs> Not referencing anything in particular, just it's a good good hmm. word for I mean, a, a general group of people. Oh, yeah, is that one? With all my friends, we call each other a fellowship, yes. of course. Go fellowship down the of the lads. <laughs> of the lads. <laughs> yes, you can have people casting magic and knights and all this kind of stuff. And the film takes its cues a little bit from uh, at least the setup 
of the first game. There's not much material shared, I think, beyond that. At least I haven't played any of the Dungeon Siege games. No, sadly, I am completely um, Dungeon Siege blind, let's say. You uh, pick a generic character, a farmer, and you can also create that character, so it could be male or female as well, so you can sort of adapt the look of them too. But they're fairly generic, and there's an opening uh, monologue setting the scene which says that a long time ago on the continent of Arana, there was the Tenth Legion, who were the dying empire's most valiant soldiers, and uh, they drew west to the land of Ebb, seeking to preserve what their empire had lost. And the kingdom of Ebb had existed for 300 years of peace and freedom until... And then you're a farmer and you get attacked by some... Peter Peter Rabbit. (laughs) (laughs) Get off me crops! Yeah, it's basically just... Lettuce pests. Hmm. Uh, All those those proper nouns, though, are completely made up, aren't they? I know everything's made up, but you were listing off things like the Kingdom of Ebb and 300 years ago, and you think, what, should we say 400, 300, 350? Well, that's the thing, because in some of the material surrounding this film, and you find it quite a lot with fantasy films, is that they keep referring to these sort of movies as period pieces. Mm. I think uh, one of the pieces of trivia or dug up on this film was that Burt Reynolds had reached a point of his career and the reason why he's in this film is because he hadn't done a period movie he said it was like a period piece it's just like this didn't really happen Burt (laughs) did you think he knew that though when was this set again well I think technically when I did a bit of witty looking it says like in 1157 the kingdom of Ebb was founded or something but so in the so after Christ (laughs) yeah Post-fantasy Christ. I don't know. It's it's a bit strange, but I still don't think this classifies, even with some pseudo-medieval trappings, as what would conventionally call a period piece. Well, I have to say I was kind of excited to do this film, because looking back at the films we've done, we've not really done a full-blown sword and sorcery type film yet. I mean, we have done Prince of Persia, which I kind of feel is more like a you know Arabian Arabian Nightsy type of thing, and I know you can count Pokemon as fantasy technically, um, but I think I've got a soft spot for high fantasy on the low budgets, mm. and I think this made me question a lot about my about my um about my likes, let's say. Because I'm like a big fan of BBC's Merlin as well. And um, I have to say, in many respects, this film is superior to Merlin. Though I'd maybe watch this Merlin more than this any day of the week. So I, I felt very conflicted watching this film. I think in terms of the fantasy with a capital F... Because it was the big thing at the time, mm. uh, Lord of the Rings was obviously a... Um, it's quite successful, wasn't it? It was quite successful. It did all right. I- I'd say at the time of, of this film, which was, uh, as you say, made 2005, released 2007, Lord of the Rings was very much in the ether, and there were many films released, I think, combined with Harry Potter, mm. which were trying to do something along those lines. But... This felt less like Lord of the Rings and more, as you say, like those 80s sword and sorcery movies. Or maybe something even along the lines of Xena Warrior Princess Mm. or Hercules. I think that's the area of fantasy that it feels more comfortably placed. Not just for budgetary reasons, although I think that's a big part of it too. 
but just it doesn't have the same um, epic sweep, let's say. Mm. It was filmed in Vancouver and looks it, doesn't it? Canada is no New Zealand. No way. <laughs> um, it's, I feel like my, my, my critical faculties have been sort of compromised by this film. <laughs> um, I feel like I enjoyed quite a lot of it, but I fell asleep during it. I oh. fell unconscious. In my defence, it was very hot and had eaten a lot of turkey dinosaurs. Uh, I did wake up and I was like, oh shit. <laughs> so I watched the rest of it the next day. It's two hours long as well. I couldn't believe this is a two hour long Uobol movie. And apparently, according to the commentary, which we, we listened to a bunch of, there's like a three hour plus cut. I think only released in some European territories. There is a director's extended cut DVD which clocks in at 160 minutes or so. So a good half an hour more than the actual runtime of this film. With Dungeon Siege, yes, we haven't played the games. Uh, had three instalments and a couple of spin-offs in between and was generally well regarded, I think, for what it was. I think people were impressed by its... Um, it was the first one of the first fantasy games without any loading screens whatsoever. I remember playing Mass Effect and everything seemed kind of seamless. Then you realise, oh, there's a massive sequence where you stood in an elevator while it loads. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, that was a big thing. And as well as three Dungeon Siege games, there is also three Dungeon Siege movies. I'll be looking, I'm looking at the plot synopses for these future films... Also, Urbol movies. I'm kind of looking forward to those. Well, how much they are Dungeon Siege is a point in question because... Mm. Well, they're in the name of the King movies, I should say. Yes, they lost the Dungeon Siege name. Oh. So they're, in a way, not Dungeon Siege movies. Do we? So, question, are we going to do these other two films? Remains to be seen. Possibly, Let yes. us know. <laughs> <laughs> Open it to a vote. So, shall we just crack on with the film proper? Uh, spoilers from now on for yeah. In the Name of the King, a Dungeon Siege tale. And uh, you've got the box with you, Harry? I've got my DVD box, which was 99p and was reduced to 49. Wow. Uh, the sticker covers the main actor's name, so it just looks like a, a film called On Statham. <laughs> <laughs> Statham on Statham. Action superstar Jason Statham and iconic director Ua Boll join forces for the breathtaking action adventure in the name of the king. A simple farmer, I like to think that's because he's thick, <laughs> a simple farmer is forced to take up arms after evil tyrant Galleon unleashes a bloodthirsty army that ravages his village and ensnares his family. As the marauding forces begin to overrun the country in an effort to crush the noble King Conreed, the once peace-loving farmer is forced to rise and fight for all he loves and lives for. With a band of skilled and trusted warriors, he embarks on a journey into uncharted territory on a perilous rescue mission to destroy Galleon's brutal reign of terror once and for all. And we've got pretty much the whole cast here. Featuring an all-star cast, including Ron Perlman, Hellboy, John Rhys Davis, Lord of the Rings, Burt Reynolds from Boogie Nights, and Ray Liotta, Goodfellas. 
with incredible battle scenes by the world-renowned action choreographer of Hero and House of Flying Daggers, In the Name of the King delivers the most thrilling spectacle you could possibly imagine, and Fangoria says, easily Bowl's best movie yet. I don't know if they were damning with faint praise. <laughs> I think if they had just dropped the easily from that quote, it yes. would have just seemed a little better. Krug, savage armed Krug. They killed off our entire scouting party. Sacrilege. I believe it was Galleon. He has fallen into madness. Your king needs you. My world, the king's arm is expected to protect the kingdom, not just the castle. The king has been poisoned. Galleon is raising armies, vast armies. Those who you fight, we will help you fight them. A small force might slip through and solve the problem at its source. King called upon you to face death. Tonight we dress our wounds. Bury our dead. Tomorrow we gouge evil from its shell. I noticed it's a 12. Um, which I don't think Uobol's done a 12-rated movie. No. And no. I think that in part explains why I, I kind of like this a little bit more than than the other films. I've certainly, I mean, I enjoyed House of the Dead and, and Alone in the Dark in, in their own way. God, <laughs> for my sins. Um, but I kind of felt that because Uobol didn't have to rely on blood, gore, and, and tits and things. He could sort of just tell us, like, a story. <laughs> and I think this is the closest that we have seen Bol come to competence <laughs> in filmmaking. But also, it's probably the biggest drag to watch of the four that we've seen. I know. I did. I, mm. So, like I said, I, I did fall asleep. <laughs> but it's the kind of film which has so much cross-cutting between different plot strands and characters and scenes just seem to be dropped in higgledy-piggledy. So when I say competent, I don't mean necessarily that it's completely not without some bowl trademarks in terms of weird flash cuts Mm. and and wildly varying performance levels and registers. (laughs) Who could you be talking about? (laughs) But the fact that there is this increased budget and, you know, with that comes a degree of competency. The level is raised of of the behind the scenes as well as in front of the camera. It then loses some of the idiosyncratic rough around the edges in massive Mm -hmm. quotation marks charm of some of his other work. Are you saying that a bigger budget automatically means the film's better? No. <laughs> I'm saying it's it makes it, uh, perhaps makes it more tolerable for a mainstream audience, but for seasoned video game movie watchers mm. such as ourselves, 
it makes for a, a less interesting experience, perhaps. Well, I think if this film... I mean, apparently it's been cut down from three hours, but I think if it lost another half hour, if it was a 90-minute movie, this might even approach three stars for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can tell fantasy, shit-sat fantasy, when there is this extra plotting because Lord of the Rings has so many characters and you know they, they don't... Rather than telling a good story with just a handful of characters, they want to do... I know this is like, well, pre-Game of Thrones, the TV show... Fantasy often equals loads of characters when they don't really need loads of characters. Yeah, this feels like it's based on a book that doesn't exist and they're trying to cram in all the fan-favourite characters who, <laughs> who don't actually exist. There are characters from this which appear in the game, but Dungeon Siege, if you look up on YouTube, like all cutscenes video, only lasts 20 minutes. And a lot of that is the credits at the end of the game. You know what this film should have been about? A Dungeon Siege. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's yeah, literally no sieging of any dungeons. There is there's a short siege of a castle, but that doesn't really go to a dungeon. Yeah, there, there, there's a little bit of the villain hanging around in a dungeon, and he goes into some sort of underground mines, which I guess could be a dungeon because he keeps some slaves and prisoners in there. Hmm. But uh, yeah, there's very. I guess that's why it's a dungeon siege tale in quite small letters at the bottom of the of the DVD box. But one thing about the budget, since we're talking about it, is, and one thing the box mentions, is the fight choreography, which I thought was was, was incredibly impressive. It was done by that, uh, what's the name of the fight choreographer? Tony Ching Tsutung. I was not expecting this good sword fighting, and it's Jason Statham is you know, famous for being a very physical actor. He was in transporter and it's funny i found it funny how he's playing a character called farmer here and i wondered what his character was called in transporter maybe it was his, his character is not called transporter is it i no i think it's frank something oh. what's his character called in snatch snatcher <laughs> snatcher so anyway i was very impressed by these this, these actual martial arts you would see with an actual actor who could pull them off was it not out of place having all the ninja warriors running around the forest? That was incredibly strange. <laughs> but also, um, you might have the very best fighting choreographer in the world, but then if you have Uwe Boll directing or sitting in the edit suite afterwards, it becomes pretty choppy and incomprehensible. I still felt it was more comprehensible than um, a lot of his other films. I think partly because it was shot in the daylight... And there was this big woodland, there was this big battle in the forest, which had all these shafts of light going through the trees. And I thought that looked quite nice. And also the budget probably allowed more use of, is it wire cams? Or I thought they were helicopter shots until they realised you can't fly a helicopter through a forest. Hmm. <laughs> but um, I, I don't know, I found it a bit easier to follow, I must say. At least the most important stunt I could see clearly. And that's the bit where Jason Statham jumps off a horse. But like literally steps on a horse that's fallen on the ground and launches himself up in the air from a fallen horse's body. That I think in that bit he's running along the heads of of other people, like the heads and shoulders. Yes, he uses a horse like a trampoline. <laughs> anyway, well, where to begin? Um, well, shall we talk about Jason Statham? Yes. We're, I guess. One reason that we're doing this episode is because of the release of Hobbs and Shaw, or Fast and Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw, and we've mm. done enough episodes about Dwayne Johnson 
Mm. The Rock. So we thought it was Statham's turn. And I guess this is like in the name of a king, a Dungeon Siege tale. This is... This is like, what's it called? Hobbs and Shaw, A Fast and Furious Tale? Yeah. Or something like that. I've got no, no desire to see Hobbs and Shaw, which is weird because I think the the Fast and the Furious films are a bit of fun. Although in our earlier episode, I think I mentioned how I, I think I enjoyed Need for Speed a bit more than some of the Fast and Furious films. But yeah, with, with Jason Statham's great, isn't he? Yeah. We, we love a bit of Stath. He seems to know how to take the mickey out of himself but have you seen spy no in that he's he's an ultra spy and he goes through this whole list of things he's really good at doing and how he impersonated barack obama and he sort of fixed his own legs with his broken arms and such ridiculous things and he does it all with a straight face he will always have a special place in my heart for crank yes that's definitely i think one of the most Breathtaking, mm. almost art house, I would say, action films I mean, it's uh, that I've tilt. ever seen. Yeah. Do you prefer Crank 1 or Crank 2? I appreciate Crank 2. It's definitely taking an already OTT premise and film and then cranking it up mm. and O-O-T-T-T-T-ing it, I suppose. I guess I won't go into Crank spoilers, but you... You don't think you come back with crack from Crank One, and then they totally. The, uh, what the tagline for Crank Two is? What Rory? He was dead. He got better. Yeah, that's all you need to know. The very concept of a Crank sequel after Crank is in of itself pretty hilarious, mm. and they definitely go places with both those movies, which um, few would dare to tread and have done since. I would say. And those directors have done a film called Gamer, which I think will be doing at some point as per our our curse. <laughs> yeah, so maybe we'll go into a bit more detail about mm. Crank then. But The Guardian recently released a list of every Jason Statham movie and out of 39 movies they ranked in The Name of the King, A Dungeon Siege Tale ranked 39. Sorry, how many movies did they rank? 39. Oh, cut. No, that's probably accurate. <laughs> <laughs> just, I'm trying to. I'm just going through the list. I'm not. I've not watched them all, but he's definitely an actor who I've got an infinite amount of time for. And I'll go back to what I said earlier. I find his his athleticism pretty impressive. He doesn't really display much emotion in this. The and film requires it of him, mm. but he doesn't really go much beyond that. He's either sort of happy and laughing and smiling with his family or he's just very gruff and looking for revenge there's two mm. modes i mean the two most significant things which could ever happen to a human takes place in this movie his son is murdered and he discovers his his dad is actually the king and, yeah and he treats them both like eh. <laughs> like like hmm. jason statham plays the role of Farmer, which was originally offered to Kevin Costner, <laughs> apparently, but then Costner declined and Uwe Boll thought it's probably easier having someone who can do stunts and jump around and things than Costner, at least at this time of his career. And that's the official line, but in the commentary he says, um, um, I thought you'd only do it for the money. 
<laughs> seems. I mean, his comment not for the glory, not for the glory of being a newer bowl movie. Um, yeah, one thing I do like about his commentary, he he just talks a lot of shit about everyone. He doesn't have any of the sort of diplomacy. And again, he's a horrible man. Don't get me wrong, but. Um, yeah, it can be horrible but amusing. Yeah, there was something quite refreshing about um, him just saying how crap some of his own shots look like and um, not trying to sugarcoat it. We were, we were watching this commentary uh, before we start recording and he actually goes off to make a coffee for like a full seven minutes during the commentary to the point that I think we forgot the commentary was even going when he just starts talking again. For about two minutes, and then he goes off to get another shot in his own espresso. So he seems very distracted by his own movie, or uninterested in his own movie. And he's just carries on the commentary, eating some cake and talking about his daily meal routine. He does check out of the commentary ten minutes before the end of the film. Oh, right. He just gives up during the climactic scene, and he, he says... Yeah, so just go to IMDb, vote the movie, give it 10 points out of 10 for the movie, you know, because there's people on the internet, they want to trash me and I don't deserve it. So he's basically just imploring everyone who's watched the movie and commentary to just stew the IMDb ratings because people are out to get him online. Boo-hoo, bowl. Rate your own movie. I mean, Lord, the Lord of the Rings extended editions have about 17 commentaries. And can you imagine Uwe like being forced to sit down for 17 commentaries of his own movie? Or do you think, have you listened to all those Lord of the Rings commentaries? At the end, does Peter Jackson say, and don't forget, <laughs> <laughs> vote my movie 10 out of 10. Yeah. But uh, Farmer, eh? That's an interesting name for a farmer. Even his wife calls him that? Yeah, there does seem to be a point. They do make mention later on that he's a man who believes that you are what you are. My name, I don't want my name to be customer service administrator (laughs) because, well, it's it's a choice, I suppose. Jason Statham plays podcaster. Podcaster. (laughs) There are, there are like Mr. Bakers and Mr. Butchers. Am I just thinking of Happy Happy Families now? Yes, this is is Happy Families, Mm. the big screen movie. But also he seems to have quite a lot of good fighting skills for a farmer. And a boomerang. And he invented the boomerang. Zelda, The Legend of Zelda, he, he has a boomerang. I was really watching this film when he, when he whips out that boomerang and he throws it at people. And he, have you ever thrown a boomerang at something? When it hits that thing, it doesn't come back. It stops at the thing. But this boomerang flies back to his hand and... I realised that is sort of a fantasy trope. So I gave it a gimme. I was like, oh, he, what? You invented the boomerang. And then I realised, oh, wait a minute. I love The Legend of Zelda. I need to give in the name of a king a pass. <laughs> so we'll just run through the list of other characters now we have introduced the lead. Uh, so we have a, a little bit of an idea of who's who and what's happening because there's quite a lot of people to get through and quite mm. a lot of stuff that happens with them. So... If we break it down, we have Farmer, we have his wife, Solana, played by Claire Fulani. What, you going to say Solero? Solero. She's got ice cream on the brain. Yeah. She's been in stuff like The Rock, Meet Joe Black, Mall Rats. Uh, she was recently in A Head Full of Honey, directed by Til Schweiger, um, star of Far Cry, another Uwe Boll movie. And uh, they also have a son as well, Zef, and their neighbour is Norik who is portrayed by Ron Perlman, who we'll see in Monster Hunter. So that's another video game Mm. movie to do. He does a lot of video game voiceovers as well, but obviously he's best known for things like Hellboy and such. 
He's best known for telling people how war never changes in the, the Fallout games. I was reading in the trivia, because Morats has a Kevin Smith joint. Apparently, it says here, Kevin Smith and Juliet Lewis were filming Catch and Release on an adjoining set and came to visit the production of In the Name of the King. Burt Reynolds saw them steal two boxes of Krispy Kreme donuts. <laughs> I don't know if that's substantiated or not. But yeah, Ron Perlman, um... I guess halfway through the film, we have like a mini fellowship. Yeah, they are joined later by Bastion, who is Solana's brother. And that's portrayed by Will Sanderson, who definitely, he's a bowl regular. He was in Alone in the Dark, House of the Dead. He's in Blood Rain as well. That wig must be really good because I didn't recognise him. (laughs) But he's he's in all these bowl movies and he definitely seems like when he's hanging out with the actual actors, (laughs) he's definitely like, oh, Uwe Boll's friend is just here in the background saying, hi, it's me, it's Will, I'm going to be in this movie too. Who is this boring fuck? I know. (laughs) He reminded me of Henry Cavill in Witcher. Because oh, of yeah. that wig. Not because bit... he's a boring fuck. No, he's got like Lego last hair, I mm. suppose. Yeah, I kept doing double takes whenever I saw him because I thought, is this Witcher now? If his hair was white, it would be a, a dead look-alike. If we wind through the gorge, we'll lose a day. What are you thinking? We can cross it. Let's take the gear off the horses. What do you mean, we're leaving them just like that? Are you afraid we're going to hurt their feelings? Ron Perlman, he's um, a journeyman, I suppose. He's always he's just he's just in everything, isn't he? Ron Perlman was asked about Uwe Boll in an interview, and he does the question was, how do Uwe Boll and Guillermo del Toro compare as directors? And Perlman says, well, they're both foreigners. That's where the similarity ends. <laughs> Uwe Boll is kind of like a P.T. Barnum, you know. He's a guy who makes the show possible in a very good way, and he loves movies but he hasn't devoted his life to filmmaking as Guillermo has. And anything more I would say would be unfair to both people. You can't name those two people in the same sentence, even though you just did. (laughs) And then he was asked, having worked with Uwe Boll, what do you think of his reputation? And he says, I'm not going to comment on Uwe. I never saw the film. Let's say that. I never saw Dungeon Siege. I hear it's got problems. I like the guy a lot. I like the guy a lot, and I'm not going to say anything negative about him ever, because he's a really good-hearted guy. And that's all I have to say. So he's been very diplomatic about it. Extremely diplomatic. Um, but well, I, I get that impression that that's how he feels about yeah. the, the movies he does and the roles he does. It's just that, yeah, do the work, make some money. Well, I mean, just a consummate professional, isn't it? Yeah. Um, much like Uwe Boll. <laughs> um, but by which I mean, I mean, I don't get everyone's love of Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, I said it. Um, he... He's a guy I kind of admire more than actually like in terms of his output. And he's attached to Infinity Projects, which never get made. And uh, what? how did I get to a place where I'm doing a podcast where I'm sort of extolling the virtues of Uwe Boll over like Oscar-winning director, visionary Guillermo del Toro? I might have mentioned this on a previous episode, but there is that quote, which I think is very true, where... Uh, someone said, I'd rather listen to Guillermo del Toro talk about his movie for two hours than actually watch the movie. No, you've not told me that. And I think that's a very good point because some of his films are a little bit tiresome. He's a very good speaker and he's a very engaging talker. And, you know, I I love hearing him wax lyrical about all his loves and passions and films and filmmaking and influences. But quite often the actual films leave... 
a little mm. to be desired. Meanwhile, the director's commentary of the name of the king features a lengthy description of Uwebol's breakfast routine <laughs> <laughs> when he comes back from his coffee. He just goes right into talking about cake. But anyway, what, um, so um, Ron Perlman's character, what's his name again? Norick. Norick, he's, he's a mentor. He's a, he's a father figure for Farmer because Farmer was found as a child. So at the start of the film, we're introduced to the village people. So we have can, the... Sorry, can I, I would like a fantasy film with the village people being the fellowship. Yes, you'll have a builder, a biker, mm. a Native American, a policeman who will join your RPG party. I'd play a village people RPG. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, they're just in your party and, you know, combine forces, do YMCA and unleash a a, an orb of... Of, uh, I mean, light. I mean, I don't. I know they're going to be embarrassing, but there's so much potential. I think untapped potential of the of the village people brand. <laughs> I think they can come back. I can see them on their own TV show, animated show. We we own that concept, the village people JRPG. Yeah. So we have the family and the wife and the son go off to Stonebridge. In order to sell the crops, while those farmer, are, sorry, sorry, those are some skanky ass crops as well. Did you notice? Yeah. <laughs> while farmer stays to till the field, and this start is actually quite similar to the game. Mm. So the start of the game has you playing as the character farmer, and Norick p- appears. He's a sort of old man, older than Ron Perlman is in this film. And you're told to go to Stonebridge because it's under attack from the Krug. I mean, we, we've talked about these, uh, our main protagonists and things. But the first character characters we see are, are kind of the villain. I think I want to leave the villain to maybe the to the end. Um, so uh, Ray Liotta fans, get ready. But we're also introduced to John Rhys Davis playing Merrick. Merrick the Mage. Well, he's called, I think it's Magus. They, they, oh, I, sure. I, I keep yeah. wanting them to say mage, but I was subtitles. But yes, uh, John Rhys Davis, we mentioned him last on our Wing Commander episode because he um, was in the video games Wing Commander. Since then, he's best known for being on Question Time, shouting at MPs. <laughs> in this, so this, this, is, this is weird because he was like a few. A few years after Lord of the Rings. And I think even at the time, I found it incredibly strange how he's going so quickly back to another fantasy. And it made me rather think, made me rather sad, because it made me realise that, oh, he just viewed Lord of the Rings as another job, didn't he? I think, if you join the dots, he is like a like a, a right-wing kind of Brexiteer type fella. And then you read how he constantly complained about wearing the makeup. Because he had a quote-unquote reaction to it. And also he's the only member of the Lord of the Rings Fellowship who didn't get a tattoo. Did you read this? The nine Fellowship members got a tattoo in Elvish number nine. But he sent his stunt double instead to get it. And I just think he's probably just a dick. Doesn't sound like a team player. No. And so, yeah, I think he should be cursed to star (laughs) in as many Uwebol movies as he can. In In the Name of the King, he does look a bit more like Tregard from Nightmare. Oh, bloody hell. He's got the look. Well, he's got very impressive hair. I've got very bad um, wig detection. Is it a wig or is it just a hairstyle? I'd say it was a 
big old wig. Mm, it was very swept back. I was so used to seeing him in a fantasy setting playing a roly-poly uh, dwarf that um, he's got, he's quite, you forget how tall he is. And um, he's quite commanding. And I think he probably enjoyed playing a wizard. He's very, very jealous of Ian McKellen. He's probably spent the whole film saying, I could play that role. <laughs> I could be a wizard. I could be a wizard. Uh, the visual effects in this film. The first thing you see John Rhys Davies do is turn into like a fart and float <laughs> into into a crack or something. It does drop you into what the hell is going on pretty quickly. He's hmm. just standing on top of a, a CG landscape vista of some sort of burning temple hmm. or castle and he just goes, sacrilege! This is madness, Galleon. You've gone too far. And then disappears in a puff of smoke. And always in Galleon do, the villain of the piece, is, is Mac on the lady in bed. Yeah. <laughs> but he's not even looking at them. He must be sensing it. He's, he's not like peeking through a window at oh. them smooching. Worst nightmare. Sort of like, <laughs> I am detecting my daughter as uh, macking on a, on a man in a trench coat. Um, <laughs> yes, his, his daughter is Muriela, played by Lili Sobieski. Their relationship's a bit odd because we don't really get confirmation that she is his daughter until quite a bit into the movie. There's mention of her father, but it's not made clear. At least I didn't pick up on it. Until later on, Merrick, the father, finds out that she's been sweet on the villain, Galleon. And he starts saying, you have tilted the balance of magic in his favour. Thanks to you, the kingdom may be lost. Do you get He's really laying the blame on her door. I just think his, his opinion and women in this uh, film kind of mirrors his own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because Galleon's been smooching Muriella and, Muri- and absorbing her magic power and tapping into the bloodline oh. of the Magus. So that's why Galleon is absorbing power through her and later on she's sort of says to one of her handmaidens my girlish stupidity has damaged him she's a grown-ass woman i know it's terrible but she's just so down on herself in such a uh, i'd say problematic way (laughs) she does later on get into some battle armor and redeems herself. She's pretty kick-ass. I mean, I'll just use the whole, like, um, Game of Thrones defense. It's set in the medieval times, so it was like that. (laughs) It's like, women were sick of class citizens back then. (laughs) Ah, she shouldn't beat herself up about it. No. Um, Rayleigh Otter is a smooth customer. (laughs) He is. So there's Burt Reynolds, plays King Conreed. Not King Kong. King Conreed. Yes. I kind of missed Burt Reynolds. He was like a big deal in the 70s and I'm kid of an 80s. But uh, he, he is kind of the biggest star in this. But I would say he's... I'd say this film is sort of starring Burt Reynolds because uh, he does spend most of the film sort of being led around on a horse. He's kind of in and out of armour the whole time. He spent maybe three hours on a horse or maybe two hours on a horse and was led around to various backgrounds to film his bits. <laughs> If you compare him to his, um, I guess, the other royal lead in this, Matthew Lillard, playing Duke... Fallon. Duke Fallon. I kept calling him Duke. Um, oh, sorry. Duke Fallow, not Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> um, Is it Fallow or Fallon? I think it's Fallow. Yeah, Fallow. 
I think Burt Reynolds is acting in the film he wants this film to be, and Matt Lillard is acting in the film it actually is. Yes. It's this film is kind of crazy and and of course not every character could be Duke Fallow, but um it's quite the contrast when they're together. It's interesting because I would have thought that Burt Reynolds would be coasting and just picking up a paycheck and maybe lazy. And yes, he does spend a lot of his film lying down in a bed. But I think he does sell, not necessarily the fact that he's a king, but when he does do his speeches and he does interact with the characters, I don't know, maybe it's just them reacting to the fact that he is an acting legend movie star, and so the other actors feel like they have to up their game around him. But I think he does, you know, add a touch of maybe poignancy even to his role. No, I believe that, actually. I think you... you, you... You got what those peasants got when he when he <laughs> arrives at the village post attack to sort of apologise. <laughs> well, I mean, to not put too fine a political point on it, it's like you know, when when a politician shows up after a tragedy and it seems like it's really false. But mm. um, I felt like the king genuinely cared about his people, and all the peasants were like, "Oh shit, it's Burt Reynolds! <laughs> shit, man!" Yeah, and he apparently rewrote his uh, lines for his death scene because he he said that he never actually died in a film. And I wonder if the original text was... <laughs> but instead we get this very poignant... It seems really out of place as a result, but this really poignant sort of five-minute scene where he's talking about what it means to be a king and how a king needs to know everything about the land. He gives Farmer a bit of farming advice. Yeah, it's like gardener's question time. Exactly. But he he knows this because a king is supposed to know everything. When it seems like today's politicians know nothing. I feel like this has gone really political. But what's really weird is that this film is very much about about what being a king means. And I guess depending on your stance, it's a bit troublesome how... It sort of implies a king's bloodline automatically grants you a certain amount of kind of respect and fealty. But right after dying, Jathan Statham comes out and does sort of a kingly speech just right out of the fucking blue. And he seems to have got that purely because there's been some sort of Highlander-style quickening transference. I don't know. I quite like it. He says, like, we'll march on Crispin Hold gouge evil from its shell that was a very interesting expression gouge (laughs) evil evil from its shell he did pick up a motto from the king when he was a wee lad the king says on his deathbed to a farmer wisdom is our hammer prudence will be our nail and then when men build lives from honest toil courage never fails and at the start of the film Farmer imparts that last line, when men build lives from honest toil, courage never fails, to his son. But I don't know if that makes sense. When men build lives from honest toil, courage never fails. How is building a life from, like, working on a farm lead to courage? It's just a very nonsensical motto, and I'm not sure why you would pass that on to anyone, because it makes you sound like a bit of a knob. Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, okay. It doesn't make much sense, but I appreciated the sentiment. Yeah, it sounds like it's meant to mean something, but if you actually pitch it apart, it's meaningless. Yeah. Just before we move on to Matthew Lillard, just in terms of in comparison to Burt Reynolds, 
There is a quote from Ron Perlman on the making of, and he says this, There are so many disparate forces at work here, as represented by the disparate acting styles of the cast. Characters' personalities juxtaposed against one another is kind of elevating the charm of the piece to a level that did not exist on paper. Okay, um, so Matt Lillard, um, bless him, from Wing Commander. But as we said in the last episode featuring him, he's he's an 11, isn't he? He, he takes his performance to 11, and all I ever see him in is when he's sort of screeching. I don't necessarily mean shrieking's a bad thing, because I do enjoy it. And <laughs> I think actually out of all the characters in this film, I felt I viewed myself as him the most. <laughs> I'm just trying to work out why. Let me just... Was it the womanising? Was it the eating lots of chicken, drinking lots of wine? Because he's the nephew of the king, and he is your typical spoilt royal brat. That's what he's going for. Mm. I mean, Matthew Lillard says he's going to try and do his best and be like a good duke. But he's also drinking wine, to which Burt Reynolds says, drinking wine in the morning is not a good way to show reform. And I... They did prompt me to Google what is so bad about drinking wine in the morning. <laughs> and I felt like, oh, it's like one of those questions that you never ask anyone. What's so bad about it, really? Mm. Did you find anything? Oh, I found an alcoholics forum. So, oh, really? <laughs> so I realised, yeah. The song doesn't go, how do you like your raids in the morning? I like mine with some wine. <laughs> with, yeah, stiff drink. The thing is with his performance in this is that... It seems out of place with the rest of the film to an extent. It definitely rocks the balance of the film. It definitely tilts everything when he's on screen. But at the same time, he's the thing that keeps the film watchable. Hmm. And I feel like every time he's on screen, I sort of sit up and take notice because I don't know what he's going to say or how he's going to say it. It's always going to be a bit of a roller coaster. But you need that in a film like this when the rest of it can be pretty straightforward and Mm. plodding. I think Matthew Lillard is an embodiment of cinema itself. And by that I mean that we watch films to be surprised. And even the most formulaic plot, you, you want twists, you want to not know what's coming... And whenever he's on screen in the name of the king, you don't know what the fuck he's going to do next. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I would, I would agree. He, he is a lot of fun. I would, I would be very interested to see a muted Matthew Lillard performance. A big, big thread of this film is how he is. He, he's going to be basically the king when the king dies, isn't he? Uh, when, when Jason Statham appears on the scene. As we discover, the farmer's real name is Camden, which I found hilarious. There is the scene when Merrick reveals to everyone that the king is dead and that farmer has taken his place and his real name is Camden Conreed. And it's just ridiculous because it's like actually in Fast and Furious Hobbs and Shaw... Uh, do you know the name of Idris Elba's character? Oh, let's think. Is it Brixton? Yep. Oh, <laughs> I completely guessed that. So we're just going to name different British characters or ostensibly from London characters after boroughs of London. My name is Islington Smith. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk a little bit about accents. I do find it weird when Americans show up in fantasy. 
And but in this, there's Americans doing faux British medieval accents, mm. such as Matthew Lillard, but then there's Brits doing American accents like Claire Filani, and I don't know whether Jason Statham is attempting American or British or somewhere in between, mm. but it's a real mixed bag, but it's not like anyone's... It's a fantasy. It can mm. be anything. That's not a Yorkshire accent they're using in Game of Thrones. It's from Winterfell. Yeah. But uh, Matthew Lillard, the Duke, his, he seems to be just doing a lot of trying to kill the king very obviously <laughs> and then claiming... I mean, it's pretty ballsy to, like, flat out shoot arrows at the king during a battle and then saying, Oh, the king is dead! <laughs> Somebody shot the king! Or something along those lines. But anyway, I think in a nutshell, very entertaining is old Matt Lillard. The galleon! I feel like I'm dying! Did you dine well with the king? <laughs> what have you done? I thought you were in a hurry. To accelerate things. I suppose I may have tampered with the king's food. You've poisoned me! You've killed me! Don't be so melodramatic. It's nothing that can't be fixed. It's just like, what's the name of the guy who's also in Dead or Alive? Commander Tarish, played by Brian White. Yes, he plays Zack in Dead or Alive. Yeah. I don't know what it was about the cinematography, but he seemed to have like a paint-on beard in this. There's definitely one point where his beard is more painted on than other times. I'm not sure it's a whether it's a contrast thing or mm. but the whole film is so muddy looking. I would say bright. It's so brown <laughs> and grey and just pasty. If you compare it to sword and sorcery movies of the eighties or something, at least they were colourful. Do you think it was shot on digital? Like early 2000s digital and then given like a so-so DVD transfer? Possibly. Yes, I liked the fact that quite a bit of it was filmed on sets or quite a bit of it was filmed on location, but there are points where it's very much like they're on the green screen of Nightmare. And I think <laughs> on the commentary, Uwe Boll does mention how he fired a bunch of CG companies for doing shitty work. <laughs> I don't know, I do, I do get the impression that he's probably trying to get things done as cheaply as possible. And... But he had si- the budget for this film was $60 million. Oh, I thought it was just two. No, it was six <laughs> It zero. looks like $2 million. <laughs> $60 million. They me- in the making of, they mentioned that, you know, it's a big gamble to do a $60 million movie with no distributor, which is how they made it at the time. Bloody hell. Yeah, it's a bit of a gamble. Well, John Rhys-Davies on the making of says, visually, this picture is stunning. It's such a good impression. <laughs> Is that it? That's, that, I think that's his only quote in the whole of the making of. <laughs> Visually, this picture is stunning. He could have been looking at any picture as well. He could have been looking at National Geographic. <laughs> so, uh, Jason Statham's wife and son arrive at Stonebridge, uh, a village which conspicuously does not have any bridges in it. <laughs> um, and uh, it's a beautiful location, though. I, I still, you're talking, you seem to be pretty down on the visuals, but I think some of the location work, a lot of scratch in New Zealand, of course, but um, it's it's beautiful coastal location. It does have sort of the tang of a movie village where you wonder, I don't see like a 
hotel or a or a <laughs> that's what a city a town is. <laughs> or a supermarket. It doesn't have a super, you know what hairdressers. I mean? It, it looks know. like a collection of huts, but with no actual. La di da. No high street to speak of. Beach city boy from the kingdom of Ebb. Don't even have a waitrose. <laughs> <laughs> but he, it quickly gets burned, doesn't it? Because there's a Krug attack. What yes. are the Krugs? Well, the Krug seem to be an army of mindless monsters who don't usually have armour and weapons, so something's up. They kind of look a little bit like how in Power Rangers or in the kind of Japanese Tokusatsu Ranger things you have like the dribbly spawn monsters go and start kind of fighting our heroes and they have that same sort of acting style. (laughs) I think the difference though is that the costumes for these monsters apparently were about $10,000 each. According to IMDb. So that's where the 60 million went. Pretty much. I actually quite like the design of these monsters. I like their kind of muddy armour. Uh, there's one full-blown uh, orc buttock shot in this movie at one point <laughs> where it catches the light. <laughs> I thought, wow, they went there. Somebody moulded that orc ass to... Um, Chef's kiss. <laughs> um, but they have some. They have some interesting tactics later on. Like they can burrow underground and mm. leap out the ground, and then at one point they go and sit in catapults and set fire to themselves and launch themselves into yeah. the uh, opposing forces. I'm not sure. <laughs> they could burn literally anything. In fact, I could find loads of things slightly more flammable than than orcs. <laughs> it was quite an uh, arresting image to see. Like an orc f- on fire flying through the air. Sure. And I think they looked a damn sight better than the CGI orcs in The Hobbit. Uh, take uh, that, PJ. Take that, Peter Jackson. Go cry into your gold in your underground caverns. <laughs> lying there in your big gold pile where a tiny Martin Freeman is running around your toes trying to steal your ark and stone. But yeah, I quite like these. I quite like these monsters, and um, the name comes from the games. Mm-hmm. Again, in that it's a regular occurrence on this podcast, where I think a name in the game sounds totally shit in the film. <laughs> the Krug have Ray Liotta and all these important actors like Burt Reynolds say the Krug. It's like, oh my god, <laughs> oh dear. But the Krugs, they launch an attack both on Farmer's Village and on Stonebridge. And having done away with the ones at home, Farmer and Norick make their way to Stonebridge to try and find Solana and the family. But when they arrive, Solana is missing. Solana's parents are dead. And so too is Zeph. Their son. I was genuinely shocked. It was around this point where I actually checked the rating on the video box. Hmm. When you when you're now when you're thirty six years old, you don't actually bother to check the ratings of films anymore, and you forget. When you're a kid, you're like, "Can I see this film? <laughs> oh, it's a twelve. I'm just oh, just old enough." But I was watching this kid running terrified through through the through the gra- long grass. I was like, "Oh, is he going to get brutally murdered?" But no, he's murdered off camera. Usually in this film, it is always, I think, 99.9% of the time in these fantasy films, like Conan and stuff, the hero loses everything. They lose the wife and the kid or the mum and the dad. It's really odd that the two adults are sort of, they sort of survive. Mm. Later on, so Ron Perlman, he's the one to reveal to Solana 
that her son is dead. And it's a very odd bit where Ron Perlman is trying to console her and says that Jason Statham is coming. And at the end of the day, you're all he really needs. And you can make another kid. <laughs> he doesn't say that. No, but I expected him to. Well, it, it is revealed later on that she is with child. But that sort of dropped in like a the room style because she's meant they mentioned once oh you're all with child now but they never mention it again yeah and then later on in the film when Jason Statham and his wife are finally reunited I don't know if the character Farmer knows yet if his wife knows that their child is dead they sort of embrace each other and it's like. Do you think he waits, like, days later to mention, oh, shit, did I tell you our son's dead? The person responsible for Farmer's son's brutal murder, the one who is in control of the Krug, is Galleon, portrayed by Ray Liotta. In fucking deed. (laughs) What a performance. Ray Liotta Star of Goodfellas, which in the making of Jason Statham says is his favourite film of all time. And he was just... Couldn't believe he was acting in front of Ray Liotta, Henry Hill in the movie. Although they did appear in Revolver earlier to this movie, the Guy Ritchie film. So he he should have been able to get over himself and just, you know, <laughs> not fanboy around him again. I guess you're, you're, you're getting a sense of our tastes because we've just been raving about Ray Liotta, despite the fact he clearly cannot give two shits about being in this film and there's literally no attempt to make him seem like he's from the past he has absolutely walked out you know onto set with his gelled up hair and his perfectly shaved face and everything i'm pretty sure he's wearing a shirt from top man it's like a normal button shirt at the start at least he is dressed like liberace but then he shifts into just a full leather trench coat yeah. uh, for the finale. How long have leather trench coats been around for? Again, this is not a period piece, it's, it's a fantasy. Since 11 whatever. So they still till the fields and they don't have electricity, but they do have sweet leather trench coats. Mm. That's how it works. And a, and a waitrose on the high street. Yes, yes, that too. <laughs> it's very juicy, ripe villainry mm. when he does... First time you see him in his leather trench coat, he does go to his dungeon lair. He goes, ah, it's good to be home. Mm. And then later on, he's just saying stuff like, you have no idea how powerful madness can be. Oh, yes, I loved it. And Um, in my kingdom, there'll be no word for madness. We shall simply call it power. It's brilliant. So he spends half the film with this swirling CGI vortex. And I realised, oh, it reminds me of like, do you know in Toilet Duck adverts where there's like a king germ? <laughs> <laughs> I am causing a lime scale around your toilet bowl. Oh no, Toilet Duck! <laughs> 99.9% of me is now dead! <laughs> but he doesn't even sound that aggressive. He's just got this sort of rather feeble... He's just like a douche. ...voice. But the thing is, is that he's controlling the crowd. Mm. And he goes into, like, sort of sorcery VR mode. Hmm. And he can sort of see through, I guess, some, like, main crud. What, what are they called in Lord of the Rings? Urukai? Well, no, like, the kind of witchy ones. Witch kings. Witch kings. So you have fake witch king 
in this film, and he kind of controls what's happening through them, and that's his sort of, like, view into the battlefield. And every now and then, Jason Statham kills one of them, and black goo smoke Hmm. emerges out of them. But the voice he has when he's speaking through them, like he's got a voice changer thing, sounds even lamer. It's just like... Oh, I'm going to really totally kill you, farmer. I'd love that to be the actual dialogue. <laughs> Ray Liotta would appear in another Uwe Boll movie. God, that's interesting. A remake of a Frank Sinatra film called Suddenly in 2013. So clearly wasn't completely burned by the experience, although you do get the impression that he was kept away from the rest of the cast the whole time in his yeah. VR chamber. Um, just in case you can hear it, we're being joined... By my own dark overlord, uh, Niles the cat, um, who's now joined us uh, in the pod booth. In the pod booth is what I wanted to say. So, um, yeah, his commentary on this film, you, know, you can tell he's very happy about it. If you hear contented purring, it's not from us. No. It's from someone who didn't watch the film. <laughs> True. So, with the main players in position, the film is largely. Farmer, Bastion and Norwich going after Solana, trying to track her down. She's been kidnapped by the Krug. They do catch up with her, but then get split up. So Farmer gets taken away and uh, eventually rescued by Merrick. Whereas Bastion and Norwich, they find Solana and they are captured. And there's a bit where... Basically, fruitlessly, Norwich tries to escape from the dungeon and free a bunch of people and then is just killed. Very quickly stabbed. It's just like, oh, Ron Perlman needs to go and film something else now. Well, you know, it's really bizarre because right at the start of the film, when the Krug initially attacked, I thought that's when uh, he was going to die because it was all set up. He... Jason Statham runs to the barn where Norwich is being attacked and all these monsters... Are, are attacking Ron Perlman. And you think, oh, this is the bit where there's his death scene. And then if they reveal some factoid, that would be the point in a traditional movie where Norak reveals, oh, by the way, you're actually the, the, the heir of the king or whatever. But no, no, there's no big death scene there. He tries to escape and is immediately shanked. I mean, there's like a, it's like a mini quest, isn't it? They On their quest to track down the Krug... They go through is it Sedgwick Forest, and again I'm I am tipping doffing my cap to Ura Bowl here because I found the swingers of Sedgwick Forest <laughs> um, quite magical. There are these this entirely female um, group of. I kind of want to say fairies, or they're kind of woodland people. Tree ladies. Tree ladies. They they swing down on, on vines, on on ropes, covered in leaves. That's what a vine is, people. And there are all these leaves floating around, and I just found it absolutely magical. And I just didn't think Urbol was a guy capable of the kind of magical sequences you'd find in your fucking lady hawk or whatever. Part of the plan, farmer. Let us down. When I'm ready. Get out of our forest. You have no business here. We hate your weapons and your killing. Passing through, that's all. Then pass through. And never come back. 
just a little bit lame I liked it I could... the way they roll down the vines is that whole oh, so... acrobats rolling down mm. bits of big cloth like BBC One Ident I don't know I went to Glastonbury Festival recently and went to the big top because I really wanted to see some circus stuff and didn't realise that like, 99% of circus stuff is hoops <laughs> hoops 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 everything was a fucking hoop and sometimes there were hoops of LEDs great sometimes it was flaming hoops yes Great, fine. But this was just an extension of that. I was just, oh, this was not a hoop. And I was happy that it was ladies on vines. And what's, who's dangling at the end of one of these vines? Kristana Loken. The Terminatrix. Who will talk about when it comes to Blood Rain. And uh, Mortal Kombat Conquest. That's where we first encountered her. A thief. Yeah. Taja. <laughs> yes, well she's mostly known for playing the female Terminator in Terminator 3 and was this before or after Blood Rain? This was after. This is after. So this, this was a favour. I, I just li- I like Kristana Loken. And, um... You can tell she's from the forest because she has leaves in her hair. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of slow motion leaves in this sequence. And every time they go into Sedgwick Forest. But, you know, as I say, as a Merlin fan, this, this was like a step above what I usually watched in Merlin. Okay, that, I, I forget the baseline of, yeah. of where we're... I mean, talking, talking about baseline, my my Tumblr algorithms now forever are generating sexy pictures of Merlin and King Arthur. Okay, I know I know I've tagged my interests as Mer as Merlin, but uh, blimey, I've seen things I can't unsee. Um, the Tree Lady's purpose that they serve is that they don't get involved with the wars of men, and they refuse to. It's basically Treebeard, isn't it? Yeah. From Lord of the Rings. But then eventually they realise, well, the Krog are going to invade and burn our forest, so we might as well help out. So that's when we have kind of like the big forest battle scene, because Duke Fallow has aligned himself with Galleon, and he has enlisted the Krog to become allies of the legions that he has effectively commandeered in the absence of the king, who has been poisoned by Galleon, revived by Merrick temporarily. He's got very little time to live, but enough time for a big old Barney in a forest. That last sort of minute you've just done, Rory, is... Uh, kind about of... an hour's worth of the movie. <laughs> it's quite, yeah. It's, um, yes. About an hour in, though, I think things perked up around about here. No, nothing of any, of any import happens. It's just, it's just fighting happening until the fucking end but uh... as we mentioned Fallow shoots the king with some arrows and not with a gun <laughs> like I have produced this Krug technology <laughs> Krug technology and Fallow and Commander Tarish have a duel in the woods I'm trial not... by combat yeah trial and by another combat very impressive sword fight I thought again I'm used to just the shitty I'm sort of shitting all over my favourite show, Merlin, here, but yeah, the fight stuff is just... TV fighting ain't great, usually. Tarish has Fallow by the throat, but then the announcement is proclaimed that the king is dead, 
And so Fallow, as the next in line of the throne, declares himself king did, did, and says, hip hip huzzah, and, hip hip huzzah. And nobody responds. Yeah. I, guess that, I guess that's where I identify with, with this character, like grasping for praise but receiving none. <laughs> Happy birthday to me. Happy birthday to me. <laughs> he is the Richie of this film. Yes. <laughs> oh, poor old Rick Mail. Imagine if they did like a, a bossum. TV series, but set in medieval times. Well, he was Merlin himself. Oh, of course he was. I mean, actually, when he is trying to say happy... He doesn't say happy birthday. When he's... When, he, <laughs> when um, the Duke is trying to get people to say huzzah, there's this brilliant shot of all of the soldiers just looking blank-faced, and a horse, a white horse, also looking blank-faced <laughs> right at him. And then what like, am I supposed to do about yeah. it? Yeah. In fact, there's one shot of a horse in this film where they look distinctly embarrassed by their own headgear because they're wearing these sort of, sort of crap armour on their on their faces, which I found really amusing. But this is when Merrick comes in and they declare it's King Camden Conreed now, get used to it. <laughs> but we don't actually see the fate proper of Fallow. I think they're leaving that open for a sequel. Not really. <laughs> he is, I think you see him maybe in the background getting arrested, but... Oh, God, I thought you were going to say erection there. <laughs> He's getting... <laughs> All this talk of knighthoods and kings. In the deleted scenes... Bonus levels. In the bonus levels, yeah. as we're calling them now, Tarish slits his throat. Why do you go do that, Tarish? I mean, he did commit regicide. <laughs> but, I mean, come on. But yeah, I noticed, yeah, it did sort of just... That seems like a very conspicuously dangling thread. It is a bit like Sauron in Return of the King. You don't get his fate unless you watch the extended edition. But this has put all the players in position for the final act, I would say. I mean, it's another battle, isn't it? Well, yes. They basically say that... Like, a small task force could slip through the Krug forces in order to tackle its source, basically killing Galleon. For some stupid reason, this got me really excited. Because it's like, oh, a small task force can penetrate the defences. And that's like a trope. It means our heroes get to be individually heroic and just not all one big fight at this big indiscriminate battle. But, um... I guess I felt very... Didn't, I felt, oh, are we getting a dungeon siege right now? Are they going to lay a little siege to a dungeon? It's also, I guess, parallel with the game in that Farmer now takes a little RPG crew with him. So he has Muriella, who wants to make up for her wrongdoings in her battle armour. Her girlish ways. Her stupid girlish ways that got everyone into trouble. I loved her battle armour, by the way. It was pretty badass. She was a bad... Ass. And we also have Tristana Loken. Yeah, she's her, she's decided to join the humans. Is she even a human? No, I think no. she's just a hippie. Yeah, I, I think, think they're basically she's... they're like swampy. Remember swampy? <laughs> yeah, she's um protesting a road which is going to be built here in a millennia time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm going to start hugging in this tree and chaining myself to them via vines mm-hmm. in anticipation for. Destructive bulldozing technology. Do you think she's <laughs> like a cat? Do you think she got stuck up a tree and the fire department has to come and rescue her? 
Um, so she's joined. Um, who is anyone else in this um, quote unquote fellowship? Well, Merrick also um, leads them to Christwind. Um, but there's a storm which goes overhead, plunging this into darkness. A lot of the time in these big fantasy movies, the battle has some sort of serious build-up. But the, the battle just kind of starts. It gets dark and the battle starts. And meanwhile... there's a, Well, there's a big storm raging in the valley. So that explains why there's this huge battle in mud and darkness and rain, mm. a.k.a. Helm's Cheap. <laughs> well, I quite liked how muddy it was. It was really... I mean, there's no blood in this, so... Um, which was, again, surprising for Uwe Boll. So I, I just found the muckiness quite satisfying. And above the storm, which explains why everyone is in daylight in this other part of a concurrent action sequence, that's when Jason Statham, Tristana Loken, and Lily Sobieski says, I can't be bothered to remember their characters' names anymore. Yeah, I think you've done very well to remember their actual names, to be honest. Thank you. Um, they managed well, one's to... One's called Farmer. It's not very <laughs> difficult to remember. They managed to infiltrate Christwind Galleon's lair. Galleon, meanwhile, has personally taken care of Solana, having found out that she is Farmer's wife. The Farmer wants a wife. <laughs> She should have been called Sultana. There's just so many other names I wanted to be called. There's some other juicy lines here. He says to her, life has never been so exciting. Mm. <laughs> and I'm beyond mercy. I think she slaps him as well and he gets a bloody lip. And she says, if you can bleed, you can die. And he says, perhaps I can. But I won't. <laughs> <laughs> he says, I have too much work to do. Delicious. But uh, while they're trying to infiltrate Galleon's lair, Merrick takes it upon himself to distract Galleon, and we have an incredible action sequence of John Rhys Davies versus Ray Liotta squaring up in a psychic sword fight. Yeah, well, they are they real? They're the real swords. They're in this sort of circular room with swords attached to the walls, and they're just using the force <laughs> they um pick up swords and start sword fighting and i thought this was that was fucking rad <laughs> and pretty... i mean it, like in, did they do their own stunts because all they do is stand there and just talk smack at each other but again, i found this pretty damn cool but um merrick does not survive this fight I think something happens where, this, where Ray Liotta's sword sort of turns into a million little swords and then stabs him and turns into one big sword or something. It's like in Star Wars where the Jedi are saying, oh, the dark side is weaker than the light side. It's, it's easier. And um, the Sith are like, no, and kill the Jedi left, right and centre. <laughs> <laughs> but much talking about Jedi, at this point, Merrick says that we are the last two... Mag Magi, and then his then Merrick's daughter appears as Merrick's dying, and he passes on his power to her, and so just like the last Jedi, she becomes, I guess, the second to last Magi because <laughs> Ray Liotta still knocking around, totally turning into Doctor Strange. I did not expect Ray Liotta to sort of enter stage top. And just floats down into frame like he does at the end of this film. It's, yeah, he's got super magic powers. 
Why wouldn't you make a grand entrance? I guess this is the first time we've seen him in anything but a dungeon, so he's got a bit of a roof to play around in. Yeah, well, he's got a whole library of books because he mm. forms a big magic book tornado and scoops I, up Farmer. I know, it. Farmer's like one weakness is, ah, books! Yes, he Reading! <laughs> Knowledge! Knowledge is my weakness! But that, again, this is like... This is like a proper goddamn brilliant fight. I really enjoyed it. I will say there is a bit where Jason Statham does a little turn with a sword, which is quite nice. Farmer! Caused me a lot of worry, Farmer. I understand you become king. Can't have two kings bickering over a single kingdom now, can we? How often do two kings get to do battle one-on-one, getting to taste the blood of one's true enemy? You're gonna fight. Talk me to death. <laughs> he's in... Uh, Ray Liotta, he's ultimately defeated by being stabbed in the back by Sultana? <laughs> What's her name again? Solana. Solana. She screams, you forgot the vengeance of a mother. There's this rather lovely shot where there's sort of Jason Statham and his wife are kissing amongst all the scattered books and the dead body of Ray Liotta. And sort of like an inverse of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which had too many endings. This has zero ending. It's yes. just, it just ends. We don't know what happened to... Bastion, last he, we saw him, he was, I think, trying to escape out of the dungeon, and but we didn't see him necessarily make an escape or fully reunited with anyone. We see the Krug disappear off the battlefield, well, but we don't get many of the repercussions with the individual characters after that. Yeah, there's the, the last... I mean, the, the battle sort of ends when, when Ray Liotta dies, he, or his sort of psychic connection to the Krug stops... And um, all the Krug just sort of go away. So we, we, when you say disappear, they actually just walk off. Yeah, they're they, just like, oh, what the hell was they, I doing here? Oh, God, how embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, uh, mate. Sorry, oh, mate. Geez. It was just Galleon. It wasn't, mm. it wasn't me talking. It was the Galleon Bloody talking. Hell. But yeah, so there's is, this is a shot of, of our heroes observing the devastation. But it's not like there's a parting of the ways or anything. It's a proper sort of... In an 80s action movie, this would be the long kiss while the credits roll above, over the top of it. I'd just like to see at least Farmer get a crown on his head. Just mm. I want to see Jason Statham with a crown, robe, sitting on a throne. Series of retributive executions. <laughs> all right, all the people who wronged me throughout my <laughs> life. Meanwhile, his crops are dying. Yes, all the people in his village will go starving. Yeah, I've got. I'm now king. Finally, I can own some slaves, <laughs> and uh, his reign of terror begins. Well, the film ends with the credits, an Uwe Boll film, mm-hmm. and then the next credit is directed by Uwe Boll. Just to reinforce, this is Uwe Boll all over. Whatever your opinion of of his work, I feel he is an author. I feel like you could tell when you're watching an Uwe Boll film. And it's weird, like because this is like a 12-rated film, because this is less of the grungy, exploitative excess that he usually has in his films, I was comparing this a lot to your average sort of sci-fi movie channel type thing, movies for men. 
is a channel I am often uh, forced to endure. <laughs> and uh, I often think that You can watch channels which don't have men in the title. Just because you're a man doesn't mean that's the only thing you can see. I guess so. Um, so I'm comparing this film to those and... I still kind of rather like it more. I, like I said, this film made me question my own love for shitty fantasy. And I f- kind of feel there was enough in here to make me enjoy it. But I I think if I ever watched this again, I would just watch the action, to be honest. there's Just the action? Just the action. What? That's the most boring stuff. I thought the action was good in this. So would you rather watch the the acting-only version? If it meant just a supercut of Lillard and the Otter, yes. I thought you said Lillard and the Otter. Yeah, Tarka the Otter. <laughs> Their performances are the only thing which really kept me interested. Just because... I'm not necessarily saying they're good performances, but they are notable and... I wouldn't necessarily recommend watching this whole movie. I'd just say, see if you can find clips of them acting and that's really all you need to see. Well, I think if every single character was at the register of those two, this would be, I don't know what it would be, it would be absolutely insane. I mean, again, (laughs) I said at the start of this podcast, I seem to have enjoyed the film, but it also made me lose consciousness. Maybe it's best to watch it in two parts, but um, I think if you're you're into your heart, into your fantasy, and you want to see some pretty good sword fights, I mean Jason Statham is always watchable. So some some of the stuff that Uwe films often fail at, which can be the action, it's not a very funny film either. So there's no shitty humor in this that he often fails at. This is just like yeah, I will admit it's kind of like an an average f- fantasy film, but I feel there's just enough to to pique my interest and I, and I kind of enjoyed it. So it's still like maybe a two and a half star movie, maybe a, I think a three star movie at past the time. But yeah, I think I think this might have be as good as Uribol ever got, just like Fangoria said. Hip hip bizarre! So I'm sure we'll be doing another Uwe Boll film in the not-too-distant future. But what's coming up next in the video game movie calendar? We are going to be tackling a new big-screen cinema release. So you'll be able to watch it at your local movie theatre and then join us for an episode all about it. It's a sequel to a film we covered in an earlier episode it is the angry birds movie 2 in the meantime though how can people keep in touch with games on film you can find us on social media at games on film pod that's the name of us on facebook twitter and instagram we also have a website gamesonfilm.witsite.com/podcast or you can access that through tinyurl.com slash gofpod. There you can find links to all the episodes. We're also on soundcloud.com slash gamesonfilmpod for all the episodes, as well as all your usual podcast suppliers, be it Spotify, Acast, Apple Podcasts. So find us there, like, rate, review, subscribe. And also on the website, we have links to where you can support the show. And 
further video game movie related content. Um, you can also contact us, gamesonfilmpod at gmail.com, and you can find us individually on Twitter. I'm at Rory Steele. I'm at Only Man Who Can. And the music for this episode was composed by David Lightfoot. Anything for you to plug, Harry? I am still doing a bit of stand-up comedy, but I've, I've actually also started to uh, re-watch uh, Star Trek The Next Generation in advance of the Star Trek Picard show, which I'm very excited about. So if you search on Instagram for make it only man who can... Jesus. <laughs> make it so the man who can... Um, you'll get my thoughts on Star Trek The Next Generation from the first episode onwards and trying to watch them all before the new series comes out. And so I think it's fairly irreverent and maybe a lot of fun. In terms of my activities, you can look up Gamer Disco on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, those kind of places. It's uh, music and video game club nights in London. So check us out, look us up and come along sometime. Well... I'm going to start um, training myself to be angry in preparation for Angry Birds 2. I think this film has helped me along that path. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Thanks so much for listening. Take care. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.